when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's visit to America, as well as some of the outcome of the Supreme Court ruling, plus Labour's two upcoming by-election challenges. I'm delighted to be joined by political columnist Janan Ganesh, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman, Andrew Bounds, our North of England correspondent, plus Matt Singh from Number Crunch Politics. Thank you all for joining. So it's been another busy Brexit week for Theresa May. Earlier on, the Supreme Court ruled that an act of Parliament would have to be passed before the Prime Minister could trigger Article 50. The government swiftly accepted this result and introduced a simple bill that will be fact-tracked through Commons and the Lords over the next week so she can keep her March deadline. Then the Prime Minister hopped on a plane to America to speak to Congressional Republicans about her new vision to try and lead the West. And on Friday, she's due to meet President Donald Trump for their first major encounter. So, Janankinash, let's just start off with where the government is on Brexit. They obviously appealed the High Court decision last year to the Supreme Court, which was pretty heavily criticised, a waste of time and money, where they should have just accepted it and got on with it. But they lost that appeal, and they've now just said, OK, we're going to get this bill through Parliament. Do you think it's going to all be OK? She's still going to meet her March deadline for triggering Article 50. Yeah, and I think, if anything, she's aiming for fairly early in March rather than the very end. There's no prospect of very serious amendments. I would say not much prospect of the Lords causing much trouble either. The government never expected this appeal to work. But I think part of the reason for launching it is that it does generate a lot of political and media momentum behind the cause of Brexit because a lot of people are exasperated. They think that MPs are trying to undo the referendum result. You've seen the headlines in the press since December when the legal issues began. If you're the Prime Minister, you're trying to get Brexit done, you're trying to invoke Article 50, it's no bad thing if a big chunk of the media and a big chunk of the electorate think the project is being stymied by Jacobite equivalent pro-Europeans. So it works for her politically. It was meaningless legally, that appeal, but it won't stop her getting Article 50 done. There's obviously been a lot of chat now about the whole idea of it being amended. Do you think there's much chance of that happening? No, from what I can work out, the scope for amending it is minimal. And the overwhelming reason for it is just the political consequences for MPs seen to be trying to undo the referendum verdict. And that's particularly true of the MPs who feel strongest about it, which are Labour MPs. So these are people who overwhelmingly voted Remain, wanted us to stay in the European Union, but the majority of their constituencies went the other way, complicated by the fact that the majority of Labour voters actually voted Remain. So it's not even a clean division between MPs and constituencies. But because of that slight conflict, they can't be seen to seriously amend. Uh, they might be cosmetic amendments, but can't be seen to seriously amend 
the invocation of Article 50. Gideon Rackman, we've heard an awful lot this week about the will of the people, which seems to be the new favoured phrase based on the referendum result that the 52% that back to leave the EU must be listened to and the MPs would not want to go against them. It's a bit of a tricky one because we do live in a parliamentary representative democracy, not a direct democracy here. Whereas, you know, there's some Labour MPs who are thinking they're actually go against their principles to vote with what their constituents want. It's a bit of a tricky position to figure out how to go with this because a lot of MPs who don't believe believe in Brexit are still going to vote for it. I think that part of the problem is, as Janan said, that some of the most ardent opponents are precisely those who feel the hot breath of the people on their necks, which is the Labour MPs in the North. And the Labour Party generally is in total mess. I think that's an added bonus for Theresa May of the whole Article 50 process is it stretched those uh, tensions within the Labour Party to breaking point. I mean, sure, you're preaching to the converted with me. I mean, I find it pretty bizarre that this idea that 52 to 48 on one-off is so utterly definitive that it's actually anti-democratic to even discuss it further seems peculiar to me, but that does seem to be where we are. I think it's been a pretty impressive job of Theresa Mays to go from officially or nominally being a Remainer to advocating pretty much the most stringent version of exit within the parameters of sensible courses of action that you possibly could as Prime Minister. And she's performed that within seven or eight months and really suffered no political blowback at all. It's not as if many people are saying, yeah, but this is a complete contradiction of where you were less than a year ago. It's not even as if the Daily Mail or the Express or big Eurosceptic forces in this country are saying, we don't quite trust you. Is this all for show? Why weren't you on our side when it really counts it? She's been able to switch really frictionlessly. And it's a measure of the possibility that maybe she's a better politician than a lot of us give her credit for. I mean, what what I don't fully understand is whether this is driven by, as you imply, a political logic and she's decided politically this is where I have to end up or whether it's driven by just actually facing the realities of trying to negotiate a Brexit and saying, look, if immigration is the crucial issue, and that's something that was in her bones as Home Secretary, and, and it's arguable... It's driving her at the moment, uh, above all else. Yeah, then clearly we have to leave the internal market. But it's certainly a change from the position of her advisers. There's quite an interesting, not often read piece by this guy Nick Timothy, who's a key advisor of hers, who was an outer. But he wrote, if we leave, of course we'll stay in the internal market. That was his position. And he's close to her. But now, you know, a year later... Apparently, we're not going to stay in the internal market. So something has caused a change of position even within Camp Theresa May. It is interesting, that point, Gideon, that there's no question of her position about being a staunch Brexiter now, that she's the most vocal and actually quite passionate when you heard her speak at Davos and when you've heard her speak to congressional Republicans, which we'll come on to. She's really selling the Brexit project and wants to own it. So if Brexit is going to be a failure, then she'll have to own that failure or success. She'll own the success of it. Yeah, obviously. And who knows what convoluted things are going on inside her head. But clearly, at the point where she decided that she wanted to be prime minister after a Brexit vote and with a strongly pro-Brexit Tory party, she had no option but to own it. And maybe emotionally you then adapt. Yeah, I think a large part of her genuinely believes it as well. And record that I always judge her by was her time as Home Secretary, actually. Six years in the job, very aggressive in her attempts to meet the migration target, failed. But really, her attempts to do it included squeezing skilled migration, not just non-skilled migration and the EU stuff, which you can't do anything about. So she had a very fixed view, very conservative view about immigration. The only way you realise that as prime minister is by leaving the single market, unless you pull off a miraculous deal where somehow they give you concessions on free movement and let you stay. So I think a big part of this is just her 
ideology or political worldview coming into play. So going further afield, Gideon, Theresa May, as we said, has hopped on a plane to go to America and she's got the first meeting with Donald Trump as a fellow world leader. We're recording this before they've actually met, so we can't comment on that. But she did give this speech to the Republican Party, which was particularly interesting because, as Janan said, the best thing to judge Theresa May on is her time at Home Secretary. During that time, expressed very little views on the world order, on geopolitics, on NATO. We do know that she's been always Eurosceptic and she wants us to pull out of the ECHR and other bits and bobs. But she gave this speech, which was presumably written by people in her office as well as herself, which paint this idea that the UK and the US can link together to reignite the West's view and to hit back against China and Russia and Iran and all these other forces. It was certainly thorough, but it seems to clash with a lot of what Donald Trump believes. Yeah, she has a pretty unenviable task, to be honest. She has to go and deal with a US president who, not to put a finer point upon it, many people in Britain, and I do think many people in our entourage think he's unhinged, and who also believes things that are very against the conventional British establishment wisdom. And as you say, she hasn't dealt much with foreign policy. So what do you do? You adopt the establishment view, and the establishment view is pro-NATO, pro-trade. And interestingly, she's even resisted Trump's invitation to join her in the destruction of the EU and said, actually, you know, we don't want to destroy the EU. So on all the key policy issues, she is at variance with Trump. And yet, because of Brexit, she absolutely has to have a decent relationship with the guy. The European option doesn't exist anymore. Indeed, she's desperate to have this trade deal. So she's in a pretty hopeless situation. She made the best of it before the Republicans. But that's the easy part. Dealing with Trump himself is something else. Yeah, I thought she played a bad hand pretty well, actually. It was never an option not to go to America. And it was never an option to go to America and repudiate Trump. She has to defend UK interests and maintain some kind of productive relationship with the Americans. I think the way she sort of squared it was by dropping in these little coded criticisms, or at least expressing her view on things like NATO and preserving the European Union and retaining a commitment to trade, which weren't explicit criticisms of Trump, but clearly drew some distinction and could be seen as a friendly critical lobbying attempt to keep this administration somewhere within the parameters of Western orthodoxy over the past 50 years. The other thing she did was she really did address congressional Republicans. And I think she's cleverly worked out that Trump is really an independent president presiding over a Congress made up of two political parties. He himself is only nominally Republican. And the way you can maybe exert some influence over the American system is by going over Trump's head and appealing to a Republican Congress that really does have reservations about him, especially on foreign policy. And I thought the fact that they applauded her quite keenly was was telling and, and promising from her point of view. I agree with that. And I thought she came in and instantly trying to make a bond with them and saying, I'm conservative. I'm the daughter of a vicar. I feel the same things as you. I believe the same things that you do, which is not quite what David Cameron would have said in a situation. But trying to create that ideological link is not something that was naturally in his judgment. And you could see why they'd like that. And they'd like this idea of this person coming from similar backgrounds to a lot of them to build that bridge there. And her other calculation is that there's a trade deal to be struck and Congress will have a big say in that. But as you said, it's the problems the Republicans have with the White House is the same that Theresa May is going to have with the White House. And to be fair to Cameron, I mean, he had two relationships. He had to also manage a relationship with a Democratic president. And so he couldn't come out too strongly as the voice of right-wing conservatism. The whole trade deal question is going to be a very, very interesting one because Trump has appointed out-and-out protectionists and he prides himself 
himself on being a tough deal maker, tough to the point of often not paying his contractors and so on. So is that the kind of guy you really want to trust to do a trade deal? But I think politically, she needs it. She needs it to show people at home that Brexit can be a success. And she needs it to show the Europeans that Britain has some options. One of the things that I thought striking, Janelle, is the idea that she's not gone in for this Trumpian language of calling for the EU to fall apart. Now, Ted Malik, who is thought to be Trump's ambassador EU, was said in an interview last night, in a past life, I helped bring down the Soviet Union. Maybe it's time to bring down another union. So the whole Trump's view is to try and do everything they can to destroy the EU. Because the UK view, but not the Tory party view. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think it's interesting that Theresa May has actually said, we want Europe and the EU to survive and to prosper. It's just not for us. Why do you think that's her attitude? Because it would be absolutely demented to say anything else. There's no way, no way at all, any prime minister of this country could say as an explicit goal of British foreign policy, we'd like to drive a wedge between all these major European countries and unravel the project. Even if some Tory MPs deep down assume, well, of course, Brexit will lead to the unravelling of the Michael EU. Michael Gove. And yeah, and a few of them actually welcome it explicitly. It can never be the policy of a, a semi-serious prime minister of the country to do that. So I think she had to draw a line between her and elements of the US administration. Particularly, actually, Janan, because the Europeans suspect that might be the policy of the British government. So it was interesting for me when I was in Davos, I was talking to a kind of senior European commissioner, and he said, look... I'm under no illusions that when Liam Fox walks into the room, that's the trade minister, that he doesn't just want a trade deal, he wants to destroy the EU. And so for her to confirm that impression would mean that these negotiations set off not in a remotely amicable way, but as two enemies. Yeah, well, the negotiations are the point. I mean, Trump can say whatever he likes about the EU because he doesn't particularly need anything from them. We're about to commence two years of negotiations. We need a lot from them. Well, our entire economic model hinges on what we get out of those negotiations. Our market access hinges on it. So there's no way you can start that by saying, you know, by the way, this 50, 60 year project of yours, which you've committed to as an escape from war and tyranny and dictatorship, we'd quite like it to fall apart. And finally, Gideon, her comments on China, because George Osborne talked about this great golden age and tried to develop lots of arrangements with China. Theresa May looks to be taking a very different attitude and adopting some of the Trump position of taking a more sceptical view of that. But she's due to make it pay a visit to China in the next few weeks, I believe. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, it's very, very difficult for May because obviously the American relationship is critical. But up until now, and Osborne was maybe testing this really to the limits, we've been able to look for a very strong mercantile relationship with China and still look to the US as our major strategic ally and indeed economic partner and sort of ignore the fact that relations between the US and China have been getting worse and worse. Now, with Trump, that relationship between America and China could really deteriorate. Hit breaking point very soon. At that point, May may be asked both by Beijing and Washington, well, whose side are you on? And that's going to be very, very tricky. I assume it will be America. That's what you would base on what she said recently. Yeah, and also I thought... By get a plug in from my own book she, when she said we're not fated to decline the west you know i wrote this book easternization more or less arguing that actually the era of western dominance is over and in a very egocentric way i read her speech as a personally addressed to me as a refutation of that book you think she's wrong then i don't think in a melodramatic way you'd say it's all over for the west but i think that the accretion of political and economic power to asia has been a theme for 30 40 years i think that in a sense trump is trying to say enough and that we're going to stop that we're going to stop that economically and politically and May was flirting with some of those themes by saying, look, it's within our power to stop what it's not an inevitable process. The West can continue to dominate the world if we just have the will. It's an interesting proposition. 
The Labour Party is facing many challenges over its Brexit position, but it has challenges elsewhere too. On February the 23rd, there are two by-elections due after Tristram Hunter and Jamie Reid, both moderate Labour MPs, decide to pursue careers outside of politics. Now, in normal circumstances, the party should probably hold on to both of those constituencies. But Brexit, combined with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, has put them both into contention with an opening for both the Tories and UKIP. Andrew Bounds, let's start with Stoke. You've been out there on the stump with Paul Nuttall, who's the leader of UKIP. He's been in there since about November, and this is his first by-election as party leader. So it's a big challenge for him. I don't think it's going to endanger his position if he doesn't win. But if he does win, it would be a huge win for UKIP. What's the feeling on the ground there, and what do you think of his chances are like? The feeling is obviously there's an awful lot of disaffection with Labour. UKIP has dubbed the seat Brexit central, the capital of Brexit, because nearly 70% of people in Stoke voted to leave the EU. There's a very strong white working class bedrock there. Only about 10% of the seats is ethnic minority who tend not to vote UKIP. So they obviously think they have a great chance. Having said that, Labour's very embedded there, has had the seat since 1950 and has the most seats on the council, although they don't actually run it. So it's a risk for Paul Nussel. I suppose he thinks whether he wins or loses, he's going to get his name in lights to some extent and get plenty of publicity and perhaps bring the party away from the memory of Nigel Farage and set his seal as the leader of it. He probably can't lose, in a sense. Indeed. How much is there a sense that this is going to be a by-election on Brexit because Tristram Hunt left Stoke to go and run the V&A museum, so there's no real reason it's not a scandal or something like that. And the referendum was last June, and obviously it still dominates everything in British politics. But do you get a sense that people in Stoke actually want to have another conversation about whether you'll remain or leave? I think it's moved on, actually. It's a wider sense of disaffection, which probably predates Brexit, and Brexit was a manifestation of, now that Brexit's happening, Theresa May said she's going to deliver it. I don't think people are really having that argument. They still talk about immigration and the need to cut that. They talk about the NHS. They talk about the shortage of housing. Those are the kind of bread and butter issues, which actually UKIP's talking up as well. That's where they see their chance to wrest control from Labour. Matt Singh, you've been digging into the data for both Stoke and Copeland for an FT op-ed which will be online this weekend. So let's begin with Stoke. How do you rate Labour's chance of holding on to it versus UKIP? In theory, this ought to be a relatively straightforward hold for Labour. It's an opposition party defending a seat in a by-election. It should be relatively straightforward. That said, Labour has had problems recently and all of the issues that Labour's having in seats like Stoke that Andy just talked about are going to be quite difficult for Labour. It's very strongly populated with exactly the sorts of voters that they've been doing quite badly with recently. So in theory, they've got a good chance of holding it, but they've also got a good chance of losing it. This is all about the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership means the party is about 16 points behind in the national opinion polls. And it's been all this talk that on a local level, the Labour base, the core vote has been eroded by Brexit, essentially the idea that they've had a lot of Remain MPs in Brexit seats. And in a way, this is going to be a test of that, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's interesting to look back, not just before Brexit, but before Corbyn. These are the sort of areas that really, since the end of the Blair years, the Labour support has dropped off the most in precisely these sorts of areas. I mean, this applies to Stoke and Copeland. Both of those in 2015, Labour had the same sort of majority that it had in 1983, when it was considerably further behind nationally. So even though these sorts of white working class 
post-industrial areas have been labour since the beginning of time, they've been trending quite heavily against labour in recent years. And Andy, what's the view on the ground about Jeremy Corbyn? Does his name come up much? Do people know him? And this is a thing you've looked at as well in other parts of the north. How is his popularity different there as opposed to in London? Well, it's very different. Labour certainly don't mention him very much. The UKIP like to mention him a lot, and so do the Tories. He definitely doesn't go down well on the doorstep. People don't like his attitude towards defence, towards nuclear, Trident, certainly up in Copeland, towards nuclear power, towards foreign aid, for example. So he just plays very, very badly. I mean, interestingly, in Oldham, West and Royton, which was the by-election just over a year ago, where UKIP was predicted to do strongly, they were trounced. And part of that was having a strong local candidate. And Jeremy Corbyn, through various mishaps, didn't manage to visit the seat at all. Didn't seem to hurt Labour. If anything, probably helped them. And tell us about the Labour candidate in Stoke. The person they've chosen has been making some waves already. Yes, indeed. He put a tweet out. Common theme these days, isn't it? Social media blushes <laughs> in which uh, I don't know what the language of the podcast is, Seb, but um, he did refer to Brexit as a pile of shit. I think I'm not sure if that's the right quote, but roughly in those terms. And is definitely remain, although he's now said, well, look, I'll knuckle down and vote out, which I think actually that's a huge challenge for Labour, isn't it? Because they do have these leave seats in the north where MPs are under massive pressure to back Article 50 and then in London you know you've got people who are desperate for them not to back Article 50 and to fight so they're straddling these two horses and and the gap between them is getting wider and wider but he's a local councillor which I think helps in next door Newcastle under Lyme he's lived in Stoke in the past so it enables them to play Nuttall as a parachute candidate who's come down from Liverpool and doesn't really know the area and I have to say you know one of the things in the piece I wrote is that there's a very strong local identity in Stoke-on-Trent the council actually run by independence not uk independence they've only got one there's actually another group of even more local independents who have successfully tapped into the disenfranchisement and disaffection with the way the economy's gone there and therefore they take a bit of the oxygen away from ukip and actually ukip doesn't necessarily have the foot soldiers on the ground that it does in other seats well i think that's going to be a problem Let's move on to Copeland now, Matt. So this is a slightly different seat with a much smaller majority. And I think this is where the Jeremy Corbyn problem gets a bit more interesting because it's right next door to the Sellafield nuclear power plant. And Jamie Reid, the MP who's standing down from there, is going to work for Sellafield. And Jeremy Corbyn takes a very anti-nuclear stance, both in terms of power and in terms of weapons. So you can imagine that playing quite badly. And having a 2,000 majority is very different to having a 7,000-odd majority that Labour have got in. Stoke. Yeah, it's difficult to analyse how much effect local issues often have because the thing with by-elections is that you get one, or in this case two at a time. So it's, uh, other than from anecdotal evidence, it's quite hard to get a handle on the importance of it. But that said, because of the fact it's a small majority, it's quite clearly in Copeland to fight straight between Labour and the Conservatives. The interesting effect of that is that you've got a situation where it's a governing party in contention. Now, it's a pretty well-established dynamic in by-elections that there's a huge drag on vote share for governing parties. In 96% of by-elections, they've lost vote share since 1983. And for that reason, it's exceptionally rare for a governing party to pick up a seat in a by-election. It hasn't happened since 1982 when there was a defecting incumbent. It hasn't happened without any kind of strange circumstances since 1960. So I think Copeland is more difficult for the Conservatives than probably the punters and people that don't look too closely at by-elections are assuming but for all the reasons that we talked about it is nevertheless a possibility and it will be very interesting to watch and if they lose one or both of these it's again going to open the question of jeremy corbyn's leadership and the labor party standing because i think based on what you've said 
it looks as if they should have a good chance at holding them. Under normal circumstances, they should hold them. But if they lose them, then it's going to say, well, hang on a minute, what is happening to the Labour core vote? Has it been destroyed? And that, of course, again, may raise questions about this national polling. Is that accurately represented? Because some posts, I don't know if you believe this, but some believe that the national numbers are not accurately reflecting what's going on on the ground, which is actually a worse picture for Labour. Yeah, I mean, under normal circumstances, you'd expect a decent swing towards Labour of, uh, you know, 10-12%. Um, obviously, I don't think anyone's expecting that. But the interesting thing in terms of the internal dynamics within Labour is that one thing that people on the left, people sympathetic to Corbyn, have been pointing out is that in real votes-type situations, the local election results, the by-elections and so on, prior to the EU referendum, that Labour was actually doing OK. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of reasons why you'd expect an opposition party to do that, but that has been their argument. And if Labour starts losing by-elections in its own seats, then that may affect that dynamic at the same time that there are all these other questions, so some prominent commentators, for example, on the left are starting to raise questions about Corbyn's leadership. So if that were to happen, then yes, that could be quite um, significant. And finally, Andy, the thing that I've often spotted with UKIP, you mentioned the Oldham by-election, which I remember very well, that I went and spent a day there and interviewed the candidate, John Bickley. And the thing that struck me is how shambolic their operations are. They're not good campaigners in the way that Labour and the Tories are. So the Copeland fight will be a straight fight between Labour's pretty formidable by-election machine and the Tories pouring the kitchen sink in to try and get it. Whereas in Stoke, on the other hand, it's going to be a pretty effective Labour machine run by Jack Dromey, a veteran Labour MP, versus UKIP, who are lacking in money, lacking in funds and lacking in activists. Do you think that's a real issue for them when they're trying to win these by-elections, that they talk the good talk, get the media attention, but actually on the stump and winning it, they're not doing that well? I think that's very true. And I mean, even Paul Nuttall himself isn't predicting a win here. You know, he's saying we'll run it close. If I lose, it doesn't mean I have to go as leader. You know, I've only been here for eight weeks. He also said uh, to me in an interview that the reason he came back to lead the party because it was on the brink of collapse. So you do wonder, although they say the morale is excellent and things are going really well, if it was a party on the brink of collapse six months ago, how fit is it to fight? And the last thing I'd say is we often talk about this phenomenon of the shy Tories with the pollsters. And I do wonder if some of these seats, there's a little bit of a shy Labour vote now. Because I talked to a few people and not many people admitted to voting Labour. I mean, one or two came straight out and said it, but several didn't say which way they'd vote. And from the way they were talking, I thought they might go Labour, but it's almost you can't say so in a Brexit seat now because it's uh, not the sort of thing you can get away with down the working men's club or the pub, especially among some of the women I spoke to. So I'm not in the game of predictions. I'll leave that to the pollsters. We love predictions on this politics podcast. So I was going to say, Andy, come on, if to put a gun to your head, what do you think is going to happen in the two seats? I would, despite Matt's caution, I would probably give the Tories Copeland and Labour Stoke and therefore the political earthquake might be in Copeland rather than Stoke. And Matt? I think in the last couple of by-elections, these shy Labour voters have been so shy they haven't actually come to vote. But that, that doesn't... <laughs> ultimate shy voters. That, that doesn't mean they don't exist, so that could still be the case anyway. Yeah, I think there's a, quite a lot of uncertainty around both and it's quite hard to fall one way or the other. In each case, I think if I absolutely had to say one way or another, I would go slightly on the side of Labour holds, but I'm very... Too close to call. It is too close to call because there are so many moving parts, but um, if I had to say it would be uh, that well we'll revisit this in future and it's going to be some fun elections to watch that's it for this week's episode thank you very much to all my guests for joining we'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics thank you for listening
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.